If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I've counted in the book, I think, seven or eight serious plots. And one of the things that is extraordinary is the extent to which Hitler, almost by magic, seemed to have some supernatural power that protected him. At the very last moment, the plots didn't succeed. That was Paddy Ashdown describing plots to kill Hitler. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Today's interview is with the politician and former diplomat Paddy Ashdown who spent more than a decade as leader of the Liberal Democrats. These days, he's also a historian and author, whose most recent book, Nine, Standing Up to Hitler, 1935-1944, to has just been published. I paid a visit to his London home a little while back and began by asking him about the origins of the book. How many times have you heard this from a writer before, that an accidental discovery of a little thread that you pulled and pulled the story out. So this is a story that actually the facts have been known for some time. No one's ever put them together to present the picture. And indeed, even the facts were uncongenial to know after the Second World War when no one wanted to believe there'd ever been a good German. So here I am twiddling my thumbs and wasting my time waiting for a flight at London City Airport. And I'm on a website which is called British Spies, which slightly to my alarm mentions me. Um, But then I discovered the name of a Polish woman called Helena Szymanska. And she, I thought this is interesting um, because she was apparently rescued by Canaris. Hang on, rescued by Canaris? He's the head of the German military intelligence. Uh, And then taken to Bern. And so I followed her up and That was the tiny thread that then pulled out this extraordinary story. Canaris had indeed rescued her from the slaughter and blood of the battlefields of Poland, which affected him deeply. He had taken her to Bern. He had established her in a train protected by Abwehr officers, helped her to escape. She got established in Bern, was recruited by MI6 as an agent, 
and he knew she would be, and then acted amazingly as the interlocutor between the head of the German Abwehr and the head of MI6. And he used this to pass key and crucial information to, to Britain. And then I pulled on that thread and I discovered this whole conspiracy beginning in 1938 when Hitler was about to be removed um, with the agreement of Winston Churchill and the plotters thought with British government as well. At the moment, he ordered the um, invasion of Czechoslovakia. He was going to be killed. Um, the plan was to take him to Dietrich Bonhoeffer's father, where he's going to be declared to be mad, but he was actually going to be killed on the way. And then I discovered that there was this extraordinary organisation built up during the war, known as the Schwarze Kapelle, the Black Orchestra, which did these things, tried to warn the West of when he was going to launch his attacks, frustrated his plans, passed us his crucial military secrets, tried to kill him probably seven times, of which we only publicly know the 20th of July in von Stauffenberg, and sought to establish an early peace. These were people of extraordinary moral courage who, quite contrary to the lie put about after the war, that there was only ever a German resistance when it was obvious that Hitler was going to be defeated, actually began in 1935 and sustained their opposition at the very highest level of Hitler's administration um, right the way through to the hangman's noose in 1944. So you talked there about this attempt to get rid of Hitler prior to mm. the war beginning. So who were the, the key participants in that and what was their plan? Well, the central, the central historical questions posed by the book are these. One, was this the Second World War the war that didn't have to be? And two, was the peace after it the peace that didn't have to hand over Eastern Europe to the Russians? So we're talking about the first of those now. In 1937, Karl Gödel, the mayor of Leipzig, one-time candidate for Chancellor of Germany, and a high official in Hitler's government, came to the National Liberal Club and had a dinner in which he warned that Hitler was intent on war, nothing would stop him, appeasements wouldn't work, and that in September of the following year, 1938, he was going to launch a coup, launch an invasion to take Sudetenland. And the deal was, supported by himself, members of the Foreign Office and all the key German generals, that if Britain stood up to him, then at the moment that he ordered the troops to march on Sudetenland, they would remove him in a coup. A coup, by the way, is in place. There are 50 armed officers ready to attack the Chancellery. The back door of the Chancellery has been secretly opened. Only 15 SS men are there. It's supported by the chief of police in Berlin, by every one of the army officers in command of the regiments around Berlin and by key officials in the Foreign Office. Just at the moment, literally within half an hour, the coup being launched up pops Chamberlain and proposes Munich. So Karl Gödler is the first of these. Then there are two other key people um, in the leadership of the Black Orchestra. Um, the one is Ludwig Beck. He's the head of the army and until he resigned before Czechoslovakia, almost certainly destined to be heading um, all of Hitler's armies, the commander-in-chief. And the third and most powerful figure is Admiral Wilhelm Canaris, the head of the Abwehr. Those three together um, act against Hitler. Canaris actually, on the day war is de declared, on the 1st of September 1939, meets a colleague in the corridors of the Tirpitzufer, the headquarters of the Abwehr, and says this, if Germany loses this war, it will be a catastrophe for Germany. 
But if Germany wins this war, if Hitler wins this war, it'll be a catastrophe for mankind. We are now utterly dedicated to make sure that he loses and to help the Allies win. And that's what they do right through the whole period of the war until after the 20th of July plot. Now, you mentioned the fact that they were hoping to get British support for these plots and that actually the absence of that support was quite crucial. Why did Britain not want to help these plotters more, did not act to try and bring down Hitler? Well, look, you, we need to go into the, the, the emissaries. After Gödler and the dinner in the Liberal Club, um, two other emissaries were sent over, one in August of 1938 and one in the early days of September 1938. The first of those was a man called Ewald um, Kleist. He went to see Van Sittart, the key advisor to Anthony Eden, uh, saying he's about to invade. If you stand up to him, we have we are mounting a coup. The coup is in place, and if you um, stand up to him, then we'll launch the coup. He then goes to see Churchill at Chartwell. Um, he delivers the same message. He asked Churchill for a letter to take back to tell the coup plotters that Britain will indeed stand up to Hitler at the invasion of the Sudetenland. Churchill rings Halifax during the meeting and agrees the terms of the letter, which is in due course delivered to them, making it clear that Britain would stand up to any attempt by Hitler. The puzzle of the book is why did Chamberlain not allow the coup to happen? And I think the answer to that question lies in the personality of Chamberlain. He knew about the coup, of that I'm very clear. I think his flight to Bad Gottesberg before Munich was a deliberate attempt, at least in part, to frustrate the coup. I think he regarded the plotters as undemocratic, and he's probably right. Um, But I think above all, he believed that he was the great peacemaker of the age, and if anybody was going to deliver peace, he was, and it was better um, to deal with the devil you knew, which was Hitler, um, rather than the plotters you didn't know. And I think in this, of course, lies Chamberlain's fundamental misjudgment, that he believed that Hitler was a conventional leader, a conventional politician, who could be negotiated with, who could be appeased. Whereas Hitler, the others understood, was a man of unique evil, who was never going to be appeased and was always going to go to war. And it's that fundamental misjudgment which I think causes him um, to have the hubris to believe that he could make peace himself with Hitler rather than relying on the plotters to do the job. But the consequence of that is that, genuinely speaking, you know, this was the best chance to get rid of Hitler. And if it had worked, there wouldn't have been a Second World War. Would we then have had a German government that was less democratic than we wished, that was slightly militarist, that was inherently anti-Semitic? Probably we would. But would it have been one um, that nevertheless clung to broadly Christian values and was in the line of German governments back to the Kaiser? Probably it would have been as well. And that's the fundamental difference. And from your reading of, of this plot, Had it had British support, how likely do you think it was that it could have succeeded? I have no doubt it would have succeeded. Um, Just let me remind you, the commander-in-chief of the German army was in favour of one of the plotters. The chief of staff of the German army was in favour of it. The commanders of all the the regiments um, around, the generals in charge of all the army units around Berlin were in favour of it and prepared to make it happen. The chief of police in Berlin was in favour of it. The head of the foreign office was in favour of it, apart from all the others. And to protect Hitler that day, there were 15 SS officers. There were about 50 
various foreign office, young army officers, students, all equipped with arms provided by Canaris. Um, the back door of the chancellery had been opened. Uh, I, I think that um, it was pretty certain that that coup would have succeeded, but even if by some quirk of history that hadn't have happened, this was the best chance that there ever was to remove him. All the other attempts right the way through to Stauffenberg on the 20th of July um, had less of a chance of succeeding than this did. We missed the best opportunity to stop the Second World War. And considering so many senior people were involved in this, why was it they felt they had to have this British support to go ahead? Why would they not do it? Well, I think that is that is the, the really crucial issue. The, the, the problem with the generals um, who mounted the coup and, of course, it was a problem put aside when Stauffenberg came in, was that they were prepared to have a coup, but they weren't prepared to be the trigger of it. So they were the actors in the wing waiting to be initiated. They need somebody else to trigger the, 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 the coup, and this was their failure right the way through. They were always saying, we have to wait for a better opportunity. There never was a better opportunity after 1938. They should indeed have taken him out at that time. But I think they believed this, that he had to show himself to be a man dedicated whatever happens to war um, for them to remove him. And we have to remember that when Hitler marched on Sudetenland, there were demonstrations in the street against him going to war. The German people liked Hitler for the fact that he rebuilt their economy and gave them back their pride. They did not like Hitler's march to war. And they felt, I think, that they had to see Hitler's bellicose nature, have that revealed to his people before they could mount the coup. But it was a failure of judgment. Quite a few of these plotters, and will continue to be throughout the story, were actually involved in the Nazi regime. So clearly they showed a lot of moral courage in trying to bring down Hitler, but yet they were still happy to work to some extent with Nazism. Well, there is an ambivalence that runs through this. I mean, many of the army officers who would later be involved in, in the coup, not at this early stage, many of them were indeed at least implicitly involved in some of the slaughters, for instance, in Barbarossa, by tolerating it happening under their gas. It was happened by the SAS, but they were in charge at the time. They turned a blind eye to it and are certainly morally complicit. And it is also true that the three key architects, Gerdeler, Beck and Canaris, supported Hitler when he arrived in power in 1933, believing that he was the antidote to Germany's problems. But unlike the rest of the world, and especially in Britain, where appeasement was the rule, they saw his unique evil by 1936. And they took incredible risks. I mean, they were operating at the very highest ranks of his establishment, of his administration, of his war, his war command. And they took incredible risks to drive that judgment right through to the hangman's noose. So although, yes, they were complicit in his rise to power in his early years, they spotted what the rest of the world should have spotted but didn't as early as 1936 and implacably sought to oppose him and to ensure that his plans were frustrated right the way through to their deaths. Between this 1938 plot and then, of course, the very famous Stauffenberg plot in 1944, how many serious attempts were there to try to bring down Hitler? The, the answer is we don't know because... Probably there are some we, do, some we do not know of because they didn't succeed um, and the perpetrators got killed on the 20th of July, so there's no evidence of those. But I've counted in the book, I think, seven or eight serious plots. And one of the things that is extraordinary is the extent to which Hitler, almost by magic, seemed to have some supernatural power that protected him. 
at the very last moment, the plots didn't succeed. Um, I mean, the classic one, and the one that took place in 1941, as I recall, was the Cointreau bomb plot. When Canaris obtained five pounds of British explosive captured from the French resistance, flew out to Smolensk, which he knew Hitler was going to be visiting, to Army Group Centre, and handed this explosive together with a British time pencil also captured from the French resistance. It was the only silent fuse that they could use. To the army plotters, who then made the bomb in two Cointreau bottles and arranged for the Cointreau bottles to be put on Hitler's aircraft when he flew back from Smolensk. The whole thing worked perfectly, except the British time pencil. It was the only one that failed to go off. Uh, and so Hitler's life was saved. But these miraculous escapes from death, of course, ultimately culminating in the 20th of July escape, astonishing from that bomb, which, by the way, was also made of British explosive, is the reason why some of them fatalistically came to believe in the end that he was protected by a malevolent power. And one of them, Canaris, said, the truth is that God does not want him to be killed. God wants Germany to pay the full measure of her debt for the evil that he has created. Do you hold that it was more a case of luck that it survived or that the plotters just weren't quite efficient enough? A bit of both of those. I mean, you can't say that the Abwehr plots weren't serious. They were. Um, certainly the Cointreau plot was serious. The others were a bit amateur, it has to be said. They weren't very good plotters, these uh, soldiers. But I think it is possible to put aside the failures of plotting field craft, as you might describe, in some of the cases, not in all of them by any manner of means, but nevertheless celebrate the extraordinary moral courage, which at great danger to themselves, just insisted that these people went on and on and on trying. I mean, in the book, I, I also go in some detail to the one plot, again, that just by a hair's breadth missed it, which is Georg Elsa, the Württemberg clockmaker, who over a period of five months made a bomb to put in the pillars of the Burger Keller, where he was speaking on an annual commemoration of the first putsch that he launched against the German state back in the 1920s. Uh, now, he did that completely alone. Nobody helped him. He had no co-plotters. He simply believed it needed to be done. And I, I draw the comparison between the skill and determination alone of this man and the failure of some of the other rather clumsy plots mounted by conspiracies of army officers. Now, so Germany at this point was a police state with a yeah. secret police and all those kind of things, and yeah. clearly clamping down very heavily on yeah. opposition. Yeah. So how did some of these people, including likes of Canaris, who's pretty high up in the German regime, plot for years and years and not get found out? It seems, it seems like well, it wouldn't happen in the Soviet Union, say. <laughs> well, I'm not sure it wouldn't happen in the Soviet Union, oddly enough. I go into this in some detail in the appendix of the book. And I think the reason really are twofold. The first of all, this was a hierarchical state. If you were a senior officer, you could not be questioned. If you wanted to get in to see Hitler in the Volkshanze, his headquarters in eastern Poland at Rastenburg, um, everybody had to show their identity card four times going through the various checkpoints. None of the senior people ever had to. You were supposed to recognise Canaris, Goebbels, etc. So this is what you have in a hierarchical... You dare not question the most senior. And therefore, if the most senior were in the secrecy of the Abbe headquarters and the Topitzhofer in Berlin plotting, no one could get at that. And the second was that to question a senior person 
Canaris, Beck, less applied to the girdler, was a political act, not just a security one. You had to have top cover to do this. You could not directly question somebody as senior Canaris unless you had really high-ranking political um, back cover to do that. And I think between those two uh, answers lies the argument. And I suspect that's a quality of dictatorial and tyrannical states. And I suspect you'd find the same thing in, in the Soviet Union. I suspect the reach of the GRU, famous poisoners of Scripple, and by the way, the runners of the great spy ring, which I talk about in this book, I suspect in order for them to question somebody senior in the Soviet hierarchy, they need very, very senior cover to do so. Now, you talked earlier about how the British were approached to help in the plots in the 1930s. Once the war was underway, did the plotters still hope to work with various Allied powers? Yes, amazingly, they did. And that's what I discovered in the book. Uh, there are three spies that are set up. One is Helena Szymanska, the Pole that Canaris rescued in Poland. The second is the mistress of the head of the Austrian Abwehr and deputy head of the uh, Nazi Abwehr, a man called Erwin Lachhausen. She is French. Her name is Madeleine Biherichou. Uh, and right throughout the war, he was sending her coded messages, in, giving an indication of what Hitler was planning next. And the third is an extraordinary spy whose identity we really have only discovered since the war. He was known on MI6's book as Agent A54, and he's Paul Tummel. He's very close to Canaris, and he passes their plans through a, a Dutch safe house in Amsterdam, which I've discovered. And so when I say their plans, let me give you some indication of this. They warned the West, who warned the Polish government, of the date of the attack on Poland and gave the entire military plan, how many divisions would be used, which corridors they would go down, and pass it on to the Polish government who refused to believe. They then warned the West of the date of the April attack on Norway. That was passed on to the Norwegian government, who refused to believe it and suddenly found themselves invaded and overthrown. They then passed to Britain along two of those spy rings, and I'm talking about the people at the top of the Abwehr now, a secret cell within the Abwehr, passed to Britain, the date of the invasion of the Low Countries and of France, and a plan which included the fact that they would come through the Ardennes Forest, which was believed to be impassable by tanks, rather than against the Maginot Line. And when they came through, they would do a right hook to isolate all the British forces, British expeditionary force, against the northern French coast at Dunkirk. And we refused to believe them. And then they got rather tired with the fact they were passing information to us. Um, so they passed information to the Russians on the Eastern Front, which gave Stalin the date of Barbarossa, um, the invasion. He refused to believe it. Um, but then they did start believing, and they gave him the plans for the Battle of Moscow. Um, they gave him the plans for the Battle of Kursk, the greatest tank battle of the Second World War, uh, and for the Battle of Stalingrad. How did they do this? Well, what I've discovered and has not been discovered before is that no one could work out how arguably the most successful spy ring of the Second World War, the famous Dora ring operating out of Geneva, um, was able to get the German plans to the Russian generals in Moscow before the German generals in the front line got them in some cases. And what I managed to put together is the line of communication that these plans were passed from 
German intelligence, the Abwehr, the secret cell in the Abwehr, through to the Abwehr station in Milan, by courier to the town of Chiasso on the Swiss border, on the Swiss lakes uh, border with Italy, then by Swiss railway post through to the uh, collecting office in Lucerne. And then, and this is what I've managed to discover from the archives, with the help of Swiss intelligence and MI6, those plans were then passed through the Dora Ring, sent out by uh, shortwave radio to Moscow. And this the Dora Ring, which the Soviets have always claimed was one of the greatest spy rings of history, and on the basis of the information it provided, that's true, was actually provided with its information from inside the German Abwehr with the assistance of the Swiss and with the assistance of MI6, because it was in our interest to get these plans through to the Russians. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. And considering that Hitler was, was never assassinated, was this the plotter's greatest contribution to the defeat of Nazism? I think it was, because I think we have to, you know, we have our great victories too, al Alamein, but I think the key victory that broke the back of the Nazi forces, of the Axis forces, was Kursk, was the Battle of Kursk. And um, that's certainly regarded as the turning point of the war, arguably along with Alamein, but in many people's view, more important than that. And although it would be quite wrong to say that the information provided by the Dora Ring, which originated in the Abwehr, um, was the only reason for that. It was certainly one of the reasons why the Russians were able to defeat the German forces there. An astonishing story, but true. Is that the greatest contribution? It could be. My own view is that after Hitler had invaded France, um, there were two options for him. He had huge momentum down to the southwest. Many of his generals, including Guderian, said the thing to do is press on, keep that momentum, take Spain, capture Gibraltar, then the Mediterranean is yours. Or he could turn north against Britain. Um, Canaris, using the huge influence he had with General Franco, persuaded Franco not to allow a passage of German troops through Spain and persuaded him to refuse to join Hitler in, in the Axis powers. And therefore Hitler was forced first of all, to turn north against Britain, and then when we held out to turn east against Russia. My own view, and it's a view shared by, by Goering, um, as he admitted in his death cell, was that the great strategic mistake that Hitler made was not to invade Spain and capture the Mediterranean. And Canaris's role in persuading Franco to refuse Hitler's request probably was their greatest contribution to our victory. Once World War II was underway, what did the plotters hope would happen if they did manage to kill Hitler? Would they have sued for an immediate peace or would they try and change the terms of the war? Well, of course, you hit on the third key element of the book. Right from the start, 
They seek to prevent the war widening from Czechoslovakia to Poland. And after the Polish invasion, they seek to prevent the war widening to the West, because then it became a global war. And constantly they are saying to the Allies, through secret channels I've discovered in Sweden, a bank in Sweden, uh, to London, uh, look, here's a peace you can do. If we, if we get rid of Hitler, will you agree to this peace? Constantly, Churchill and Roosevelt, who have adopted a policy from Casablanca onwards of unconditional surrender to keep Stalin on board, are saying no. So... These constant attempts to strike a peace, in which, by the way, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was actually a member of the Abwehr, is closely involved with Bishop Bell of Chichester, are constantly refused because they come up against the rock of unconditional surrender. So in 1944, James von Moltke, the grandson of the great hero of the Franco-Prussian War, who owns um, the Kreisau estate, we'll come back to that in a minute, has a detailed peace plan prepared, which he then takes to Istanbul and hands over to Donovan, Wild Bill Donovan, the head of the OSS, and to the British, and it proposes this. January 1944. We know you are going to invade. We know you will invade France. When you invade France, we will mount a coup. The generals are prepared to do so, to take Hitler out. We will open the Western Front you can march all the way unopposed to Berlin. You can occupy Germany, lock, stock and barrel, unconditional surrender, in other words, provided we can shift our forces to the east to protect against the Russian invasion of Eastern Europe. And we say no. I just want you to imagine for a second the huge number of lives that would have been saved if that had, if that had been accepted. I want you to imagine also the fact that if that had been accepted, Eastern Europe wouldn't have been enslaved for 50 years as it was. Now, the judgment, easy to make in hindsight, would I have made a different judgment? I'm not sure I would. I think I might have stuck with what I had. But the truth is that that wasn't even considered as a proposition. It wasn't even considered. And I think um, these constant attempts to strike a peace with an early peace with the West that would save lives and preserve um, Germany, of course, is one of the tragedies of the war. So having been rebuffed time after time after time, finally, in July 1944, they have to say, even though it will not achieve a peace, an early peace, we still have to try and kill Hitler. And this is the origins of the Stauffenberg plot. So the Stauffenberg plot is the one that's by far the best known today. It's I the only one that's known in truth. I mean, there have been films about it, as we know. Tom Cruise has played yeah. Stauffenberg. It's the only one... Um, but it is, it is quite wrong to see this as we do, as a single event. It's actually the result, inevitable result of this attempt time and time and time again to undermine Hitler, to frustrate his plans, to assassinate him and to strike a, a separate peace. The other thing that's quite wrong about the understanding of the Stauffenberg plot is that people think it was an isolated incident that stood by itself. There's Stauffenberg, there's the plot, there's the bomb, bang, Hitler doesn't, isn't killed. That's absolutely untrue. In fact, it was a plot that probably was the tip of the spear of around 4,000 conspirators ranging through the army to Paris, to Vienna, to German outposts across the whole of civil society, which was not only going to remove Hitler, but also form a government. Um, there was a list of government ministers. It probably involved 
the best part of four or five thousand people. It was the, the the point of the spear behind which lay this huge conspiracy. And the miracle is that that conspiracy remained undiscovered. That is very difficult to understand, but I've tried to give a reasons for it. Clearly, there were a lot of people high up within the regime who were attempting to bring down Hitler. Do we have any sense of how much popular support they would have had? What would have been the public reaction to Hitler being killed? I, do you know... They were always constrained by this. That's why 1938 coup was so important. Once this man had delivered these astonishing victories in France, uh, in the early days in in Russia too, uh, he was like a near god to many of the German people. And it's difficult to tell whether or not he'd have had public support. I'm very clear that there was huge public opposition to the war in 1938. I'm not so clear that if coups had succeeded, um, there would have been public support for his what would have happened after 1944. And there's a horrible parallel here. If you look at Hitler's support, it came first from the dispossessed working class after the terrible depression of the Ruhr Valley. Think Rust Bucket, America today. And, you know, these people stuck with him all the way through until Berlin was a smoking ruin. Think Mr. Trump, and I'm not comparing Mr. Trump to Hitler, I'm absolutely honest, fundamental, I might talk about that in a second, but, but, you know, think that Mr. Trump, whatever he has done, President Trump still retains 80% support of his, of his base. The parallels between that age and this are really extraordinary, and I think that's one of the reasons why the book is a piece of history, which you can judge as a piece of history, but very relevant to what's happening today. After the Stauffenberg plot, a lot of the people involved in opposing Hitler were actually discovered and captured. What kind of fate awaited them? Oh, a terrible one. It is calculated, no one quite knows, but it's calculated that afterwards um, in the reprisals, uh, the People's Court, the Volksgericht, overall some 4,000 people were killed after that plot by the Gestapo. Many of them, on Hitler's specific instruction, strangled with piano wire. Um, the main plotters, however, that was done in secret, but the main plotters were taken before the People's Court and, first of all, humiliated, and then killed very quickly. So it was a deliberately slow death. Um, it is said that Hitler had, it's true, that he had films made of the deaths of his enemies, which he then showed to his friends. Um, it was a very miserable and terrible death. Um, and certainly... The end of the book, this sort of sense of desperation behind the Stauffenberg plot and the utter tragedy of the death of these people. Some writing the most extraordinarily noble letters to posterity and to their sons is, is, a, is a very difficult piece of the book to write and I think it's difficult to read as well. However, out of this comes, I think, some extraordinary enlightenment. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book, because these people have been forgotten now. It was inconvenient to believe in good Germans. They've been forgotten for the best part of three quarters of a century. It's time that people recognise what they did. And one of them, of course, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was hung on the same day as Canaris was hung, at Plotzensee prison, um, literally three months after the end of the war, a service was held in his memory in Trinity Church off the Brompton Road, and the congregation was packed to the rafters. 
It was terribly criticised and excoriated by the public press, who said it was an outrage to have any memorial service for a dead German. And yet today, look at the west door of Westminster Abbey, and above it, you will find the ten alcoves in which are the ten modern martyrs. They were discovered to be empty after the war, and ten small statues were erected in there to memorialise the modern martyrs, and one of those is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, he at least has been recognised, but the others haven't. Were they men without flaws? Absolutely not. Did they make stupid mistakes? Of course they did. But nevertheless, I think the extraordinary moral courage that they had to stand up to an unspeakable evil, even at the cost of their own lives, even at the cost of the futility of their dying, is an extraordinary thing. And here is something else to add to this. As well as doing all of those plotting, passing us the plans, etc., James von Mulke had a circle who met on his estate at Kreisau, it's called the Kreisau Circle, who got together and started thinking about Germany and Europe after the war. They wrote a complete new constitution in secret for Germany. It is almost precisely the constitution that Germany has today. They invented the social market economy, which Germany benefited from right up until the moment. They invented the concept of industrial partnership. And they proposed uh, from 1942 onwards, ultimately in a paper sent by Gerdler through the secret channel in Sweden to Churchill, that after the war, in order to cope with the contagion of European nationalism, there would have to be a united Europe, a European president, a European Council of Ministers and a European Parliament. This is five years before Monet and Schumann. It is extraordinary how much of today's world, how much of today's Germany reflected their views and how much of today's Europe reflected their views as well. This book throws up a lot of moral questions. It does. And one thing I was interested in is the kind of dilemma about ethics and patriotism. At what point is it legitimate or even essential to betray your country? Yeah, that's exactly the question that it asks. And I can't answer this. I mean, you have to read the book to find your own answer to this. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was, I think, the spiritual, he gave spiritual underpinning to all of this and was indeed himself involved and died afterwards in consequence. He said that... Morality is an issue which you have to apply, but you have to apply in relative terms, depending on the evil that you face. He agonised, as indeed did Gödel,er whether it was morally right to kill Hitler, but in the end decided that it was. He said something which I think is rather remarkable, but I don't think it's untrue. Uh, he said that God demands a lie if it is the only way to protect a deeper truth from evil. I'm not sure that would work in the House of Commons today if the minister used that. But that was his... Uh, let me just read to you this extraordinary statement, which I think gives you a better answer than I can. Right, this is what I say in the book. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, himself one of those murders for his role in the anti-Hitler resistance, said, Responsible action takes place in the sphere of relativity completely shrouded in the twilight that the historical situation casts upon good and evil. It takes place in the midst of the countless perspectives from which every phenomenon is seen. Responsible action must decide not just between right and wrong, 
but also between right and right and wrong and wrong. I think that's the best answer I can give you to the moral question, which lies at the heart of this book. You're absolutely right. Is it ever possible to be a traitor and a patriot at the same time? That's the central question. My answer to that is yes, and the lives of these men and women illuminate that fact. And obviously yourself, you've worked in politics for many years, you've worked in the military too. I realise you've not been involved in situations such as Nazi Germany, but have you ever felt this kind of question arising about whether you're torn between patriotism and a moral duty, say? I I have, yes. I've never been asked that question before, but I have. I, I remember quite clearly when I was a young Royal Marine officer being sent into the jungles of Borneo to fight the rebels um, who were seeking to overturn what was a deeply corrupt government in Malaya, Malaysia, in Borneo, in Brunei, um, and believing that actually if I'd have been um, a young person living there, I'd probably be on their side rather than ours. And I also, is this a shocking thing to say? I don't think so. I also, certainly serving on the streets of Belfast, concluded that if I had been a young Catholic living without hope, without job, without human rights, without prospects for the future um, in Belfast, uh, in the years before the Troubles came, in the 1940s and 50s, indeed growing up in Belfast, I can remember thinking this even at the age of 11 or 12, would I have joined the IRA? Well, given my nature, I probably would have done. Ultimately, the reason why I moved away from being a soldier and then later on from the job that I had in in the Foreign Office was because I felt that it was pointless doing the right thing if your political masters did the wrong thing. And that was why you needed to be in a place that determined the context rather than determine the outcome of the action. So in a sense, the, these kind of questions actually inspired your political Well, I, and I'm not sure they've... No, I'm not, I wouldn't go that far. No, I think that's, that's slightly overstating it. I just think everybody wrestles with these one way or the other, either on the great scale or the, or, or the smaller one. Most of us in our normal lives wrestle with them on a rather small scale, but they're still the things that keep us awake at night. Perhaps as a soldier and elsewhere, I wrestled with them on a slightly large scale, but these people wrestled with them on a gigantic scale. And in my view, uniquely didn't always do the right thing, but they certainly had the right analysis uh, and fought for the right cause. And something you mentioned earlier, which I'd be interested to ask you a bit more about, which I guess is slightly beyond the scope of this book, but as someone who's both a historian and a politician, do you feel that we are now returning in some respects to a kind of age of political extremes? I I do, um, but with caveats. By the way... One of the tragedies of modern politics, two major tragedies, three major tragedies, it seems to have ceased to be a calling and has become a profession. It's got people in it who've never done anything else but politics and not enough politicians read history. And Churchill it was who said, if you want to see what's happened to the future, you better look to the past because that gives you the guidance you need. And he's right. I mean, to try and take decisions in a complex world without knowing the history, I think, is extremely dangerous. And yet that is almost exactly what happens in politics amongst our leaders, by the way, of all parties today. So the question you also have to ask is, are there parallels between that age and this? And there are frightening parallels, and lots of them, and I list them in the book. 
Are we going therefore to see the same outcome on balance? I think no, and for two key reasons. First of all, there isn't a Hitler. There isn't somebody who combines both unique evil on the one hand and unique genius in handling power on the other, who is determined on war. Now, are the conditions right for somebody to emerge? Maybe, but there's nobody there of that quality. But secondly, and more comfortingly, actually our democracies now are much more deeply founded than was the Weimar Republic Germany. It's a pretty rickety institution, and it was quite easily overturned. If you look at America today, what I think you conclude is the antibodies of the American Constitution are doing their work in restraining the power of President Trump. Indeed, I remember quite recently in America, in Washington, and people described to me in exactly those terms. Not perfectly, of course, but they are working in the battle between Trump and the Constitution. I think the Constitution is winning. And I think in Britain it is probably inconceivable, even though populism is abroad and seems to be one of the primary spirits of our age, for, for the moment at least. It's very difficult to see that our own constitutional settlement, it could be temporarily subverted, but could not be overturned in the way that the Weimar Republic was. And in that sense, I think the worst aspects of this cannot be replicated today. That was Paddy Ashdown. Nine, Standing Up to Hitler, 1935 to 1944. It's out now, published by William Collins. And we've now come to the end of today's episode. But we will be back in a few days with more from the world of history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.